This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls. And this week, we're bringing you something a little bit different. You may be able to tell from the sound quality that I am not in my normal studio. I think a lot of people are not where they normally are during their workday. And we have tried to think of ways that we could best be useful to you, our listeners, during this time of uncertainty with the new coronavirus. And so I reached out and found an epidemiologist who I have been friends with for a very long time, Mary Lancaster. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Lee. Thanks for inviting me. It's it's great to have the opportunity to talk to your audience and, and share what knowledge I have. And speaking of the knowledge you have, could you just give people a hint of what your background is and, and what you've studied? Yeah. I've got a PhD in epidemiology and had focused primarily on infectious diseases, specifically the, the vector-borne infectious diseases, things transmitted by ticks and mosquitoes. Following graduation, I worked for a state health department doing outbreak investigations, doing the routine disease surveillance, the, the kind of thing of when you get a diagnosis that from your physician that you have salmonella, it was me that would call and ask you all the questions about where have you been, what have you eaten. Also in that position, set up a syndromic surveillance program using symptoms and the, the presentations of people at emergency rooms to try to identify, get an early warning of abnormal patterns are there more people than usual showing up with gastrointestinal complaints? Are there more people than usual showing up with respiratory illness? Um, that sort of thing. And then we also were engaged in public health emergency preparedness related to pandemics, related to earthquake preparedness, and, and the usual natural disasters. During the time I was there, we had the 2009 H1N1 influenza outbreak. So I got to be part of that response for the state and also had a role as a public information officer. So dealing directly with questions from the public and from healthcare providers about what should I do? I heard this thing in the news and it's kind of freaking me out. Is this real or not? And then following that job with the health department, I moved on to a Department of Energy National Lab and was working on infectious disease modeling and then branched out into to other domains, primarily involving processes that are contagious. And, and so cybersecurity and malware and looking at national security preparedness and, and response efforts. So, you know, how would we defend the country against an intentional event involving rad nuke, chemical, or, or biological agents? And, and what would the preparedness be? How would we screen people coming back from, from foreign countries and the resources that would be involved there? More recently, I've been detailed to a federal government agency to draft some strategies related to emerging threats like synthetic biology and cyber biosecurity, the intersection of cybersecurity with, with biotech. So that's what I've been working on most recently. Well, that sounds alarming and terrifying, but I personally feel better knowing that you're on it. One of the things that I think is keeping people really on edge is there are we are being flooded 
with information from so many sources. And yet we have no way necessarily of knowing what's legit or not. Um, It seems to me like the most friendly people in the world must work for Italian emergency rooms because everyone and their brother on Facebook seems to personally know someone working in medicine in Italy suddenly. And we're, we're hearing all these stories. You do this professionally looking at stories coming out of various places and trying to determine what's legit and and what isn't. And how do you look at these pieces of information and kind of try and assess for validity? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I also have fallen prey to the, the, the news media and, oh my gosh, we're all going to die and we're all going to die today and from this. I've started thinking about the the news reports is imagine that this channel is is really just an overwrought teenager and overly dramatic and then sort of look if they reference you know we got this information from WHO or from CDC or another source i dig into what is that source and, and did wa can i find that WHO actually issued guidance on that can i find the original report i've taken to watching some of the the White House or or federal agency briefings directly rather than waiting for the digest via the media. So I'm I'm getting it effectively straight from the source that way. But then I'm also, I have the advantage in that I'm familiar with some of the authorities and the regulations behind public health emergency responses. And, And so, you know, declaring an emergency at either a state or a federal level doesn't necessarily mean that suddenly everything is horribly bad. It enables, it's a political process that enables access to more rapid sources of funding. It enables the ability to call in additional resources. It doesn't necessarily reflect that everything's gone to the worst possible case. But if you don't know that, it it can be alarming that there's been this disaster declaration because you assume that it means that the absolute worst case scenario has occurred. What are you doing right now when it comes to social distancing or what measures are you personally taking? I'm on telework. So all of, all of my work involvement is, is via email and phone. I am minimizing my trips outside of my residence. I made a point several weeks ago, sort of watching the case numbers grow in foreign countries and seeing the the cases begin to pop up in Washington state made a point then to make sure that I've got a couple of weeks of of food, non-perishable food stored up, a full tank of gas, that sort of, you know, gee, if you don't get to go out for two weeks, what would you need was sort of my thought process. And so now have been avoiding where I can going out, you know, limit the grocery store run to maybe once every seven to 10 days to get absolute necessities. I haven't more than once a week or so ordering takeout from a restaurant. I personally have been making a point of trying to to patronize the, the local restaurants that are providing free lunches to the school kids that are currently out to help support them. And other than that, going for a walk a couple of times a day to stretch the legs and, and keep the, the mental faculties happier. And, and that's pretty much it. 
I have to say that sounds very similar to me. Just just for my so my listeners know, uh, many of whom are members of the ABA, you know, the ABA started really looking into this and and forming emergency plans, and we all are now teleworking as well. So everyone's just trying to do the best they can social distancing wise. One of the things I hear a lot, and I think it's because this is the reference that people have, is we have a reference for flu season. And I think most people do know the flu is dangerous and that some years more people get it than not. And we've done a lot of comparison between the flu and this novel coronavirus, COVID-19. But as I understand it, the coronavirus is it's it's not the flu and it's it's different. But how is it different? That's something that I've been trying to kind of figure out. Yeah, and that's a great question. And I think part of the the struggle is is understanding the numbers. And and when the first comparisons between COVID-19 and seasonal influenza came out, you know, we'd already had tens of thousands of people in the US this flu season die. And, you know, only a, a handful of, of fatalities from COVID-19. But the the key there is to think about the denominator and, and the, the population that had been exposed. And so what we're concerned about with the new virus is the percentage of people who are exposed that develop severe illness or that die. And so that that crude fatality rate for COVID-19 is significantly higher, particularly when we, we look at, at the data from overseas. And the early parts of this pandemic, um, most of the data that we had was from other countries. And the way the outbreak played out in Wuhan and in Hubei province, very quickly the healthcare system was overwhelmed. There were some questions about whether there were enough resources to provide adequate health care. And so we had a, a fairly high fatality rate there. And the assumption in looking at Europe or at the U.S. was maybe our healthcare system is better or stronger and, and we can address this more effectively, that that rate of, of fatalities will, be, will go down. There has also been some question about how many cases are very mild or may not have any symptoms at all, that you could become infected and clear that infection without ever getting a cough or a fever. So we don't have good data on that still. If it turns out that 80% of the infections are mild or asymptomatic, then that, that case fatality rate that we thought was in the three to four percent range may drop, and so we're kind of waiting to see. There, there's a group of folks that think that that it will drop significantly because there's a they believe there's a large number of asymptomatic infections. There are others who are more conservative. Either way, you know, even if it were to drop to say the one to two percent fatality rate and seasonal influenza is still significantly lower than that. So we're still looking at a more severe impact on the human population. The other concern is that this is a novel virus. And I've heard that phrase a lot. Yeah. People say the novel coronavirus, novel virus. 
you know, I'm like, novel makes it sound exciting and new. Right. Novel. <laughs> what? Why do we keep new calling it the novel coronavirus? That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So why do we call it the novel coronavirus? So it's 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 labeled that way because it's it's brand new. We have until it was first identified by the scientists in China, we had never seen this virus identified this virus before. So to to it it may have been circulating for some time in the animal population and potentially even in humans. We just never saw it. We didn't have the ability to detect it to do the genetic characterization and go, "Ha, that's new." It sounds rather jaunty. It like the epidemiologists yeah. just want to keep our spirits up. Yeah, but the the downside of it being new is that it's unlikely that there is any pre-existing immunity in the human population. So you don't have some already built-in defenses. With influenza, most years we see some drift in the virus from previous years. Our past exposures may help us fight off the current season's influenza viruses and make it less severe. Where we get concerned with influenza is in instances like 1918 or 19, the late 1960s, where there's a big genetic shift in the influenza virus that can also wipe out the protective past immunity and result in a, a worse, more severe flu season. So it sounds like influenza, the seasonal influenza we tend to get, is something that we've known a long time, but is kind of a trickster. And this novel coronavirus is a brand new player on the scene. Yep, that's exactly it. So part of what we're we're dealing with and the uncertainties, I think, that are, are causing some anxiety is that we just, we don't know a lot of the, the technical answers yet. Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Mary to tell us some of the sources that she goes to for her information, some of the books she'd suggest people reading, and also what we can all do for a little rest, relaxation, and fun, because we're all going to need that to get through this. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her head note, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with my friend, Mary Lancaster, an epidemiologist. And Mary, I'd love to ask you to share with my audience, let's say... I'm the kind of person who really now is obsessed with reading about pandemics, reading about diseases, (laughs) wants to dive deep. And just as a uh, disclosure to my audience, I've always been that person. And I have read so many books about pandemics and and disasters. Uh, What are some of the ones that would be your go-to if you're speaking directly to that kind of person who says, give me more that makes me feel better to know more. Yeah, sure. And 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 that whole give me more, I want to learn more about that is how I ended up getting a PhD. So um, <laughs> war- warning, this is a slippery slope and you may get stuck. So 
some of my my favorites if, if you want to to learn more about the the outbreak investigation process and some some different diseases not covid-19 i recommend a, a collection of of essays from the new yorker by burton ruche um, and that book is called the medical detectives robert desowitz has written a series of books about the same sort of Odd instances of, of diseases. Um, the the title that that I am most fond of is New Guinea tapeworms and Jewish grandmothers. Sure, sure. He's also written a, a book, um, I believe, the malaria capers about the, the attempts to come up with a vaccine for malaria. Uh, Spillover by David Common is a good explanation of how viruses move from the animal population into humans. And then there's always uh, The Coming Plague by Laurie Garrett, which talks about the, the public health system and its ability to deal with epidemics and pandemics. And some of the ones that I'd recommend, just as a general reader who uh, you know, has, has no expertise in this, um, one of my favorites that just came out is Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. By Laura Spinney. And what I like about that one is I've read several books about Spanish influenza because that is the kind of person I am. But she really takes a look at what was happening globally, not just in the sources that are easiest for those of us who speak English primarily to access. One that I read in the 1990s, I would say, was Flu by Gina Colada. Mm-hmm. And that was that was fascinating. Then the if you're Again, interested in Spanish flu, The Great Influenza, The Epic Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History by John M. Barry is very good, but you find out a lot of information about Johns Hopkins University (laughs) that I was like, you know, being an editor, I was immediately like, you know, we could strike that paragraph. John, John, we're getting to Johns Hopkins a lot. But those are some that I have read and enjoyed. And the other one that I wanted to mention was Justinian's Flea, Plague, Empire, and the Birth of Europe by William Rosen. And that one was fascinating to me because it's one of, about one of the first pandemics that occurred. We still don't quite know what was going on with it, but seeing the massive effects that it had on the Roman Empire and how it went going forward. So those are, if you're that kind of person and you just want more, tell me more about diseases and pandemics. Now let's switch gears because I know there are also plenty of my readers who are just feeling inundated by all this information about coronavirus. They're afraid for themselves. They're afraid for their family and friends. And they need a lighter read, something to take their mind off it. What are some of the books that that you've read and enjoyed that have nothing at all to do with diseases and just feel nice on the brain? So I'm a a science fiction fan. And so the the two that that spring to mind first are the the Murderbot series by Martha (laughs) Wells. Um, And it's a a security robot who has become self-aware and would really rather not have anything to do with humans, would really rather just sort of plug into the equivalent of Netflix and watch movies all day, but feels some obligation to save these silly humans and gets into some scrapes um, trying to save the silly humans. And then the other one, also science fiction, um, is Red Shirts by John Scalzi. 
if you're familiar at all with the Star Trek genre, you know that the red shirt is the first one to die whenever there's an away team to the, the surface of a new planet. And this follows a, an individual who is a red shirt and who is figuring out that perhaps the best course of action is to avoid ever being part of an away team. <laughs> I love that. Some of mine that I've read fairly recently that are just good brain candy. There is a series by Lindsay Davis that has been going on for a couple decades now. And she writes in the style of kind of a noir detective, except it's taking place in the Roman Empire. And this whole series is called the Marcus Didius Falco Mysteries. That's that's a lot of fun. My favorite apocalyptic book is probably always Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry mm-hmm. Pratchett, which is a you know look at what the end of the world would be. But, you know, with angels and demons and... They're trying to save the Antichrist or perhaps destroy the Antichrist. They're, they're not quite sure. And another series that I, I might even recommend to you, Mary, even though it's based more on the early kinds of science fiction like Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde, is this really interesting series called The Extraordinary Adventures of the Athena Club by Theodora Goss. And the first book is The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter. And the Alchemist's Daughter is the daughter of... Dr. Jekyll. And she ends up encountering characters from a lot of really classic science fiction novels or children of those characters. And it's it's just fun. It's just fun. And then my all-time comfort read, all-time, all-time, is Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons, which is this book that was written, I think, in the in the 1920s. And skewers the English pastoral novel that's not selling it really well but it's hilarious so I, I recommend I recommend that cold comfort farm by Stella Gibbons that sounds awesome so I think most of the reading we do on a day-to-day basis isn't so much novels or nonfiction books but reading online whether it be Facebook or Twitter or, you know, any of the online magazines or or newspapers? And what are kind of your go-tos? And just so my listeners know, I am going to compile these and create a list. You can go to our website, abajournal.com slash books, and I'll make sure to link to all of these things. The internet has proven to be a a real good resource to to get the up-to-date information as as the events of the the pandemic keep changing. So the the places that I go to for reliable information are the CDC website. So the easiest way to get to their corona place uh, is to go to coronavirus.gov. The WHO is who.int. Those are, are the top two in my list. The University of Minnesota has the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, um, which is an excellent resource and does some analysis and and interpretation as well. The Johns Hopkins University has a coronavirus center. That's where you can find the interactive map of where are the cases in the world and how many people have recovered. And then the, the final place that I go to regularly is called Stat News. They have a number of science journalists that have been doing, again, following the the news media, following the reports from the official sources, and doing some analysis and and posts there. For folks that are in the U.S., 
absolutely find your state health department website and get the information from them. The, the states in the U.S. have a lot of leeway in terms of, of setting more restrictive guidance compared to the CDC and the, the directives that come from the state health department or from the governor's office are, are always going to be the ones that will apply to folks in their respective states. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, in addition to this one, there are several that, that I would recommend. There's one called This Podcast Will Kill You. Um, and it covers... podcast. Isn't that an awesome name? I love it. If I remember correctly, there's a, it's a medical student and an epidemiology grad student. And they cover a number of different infectious diseases. Um, I think they've been doing a couple of, of episodes now on coronavirus. They also um, do themed cocktails. There you go. Yeah. There's This Week in Virology, which is run by Vincent Racaniello for the, I believe, one of the professional societies. I can't remember which one exactly, but good source of, of probably a little technical, but good virology information from, from scientific minds. And then Take Is Directed, which is another outbreak-focused, probably more for the lay listener, but something else to listen to while we're all stuck at in telework land. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for joining us. And I just want to tell you, because I encourage my listeners to tell everyone they love this. I love you, Mary. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. And everyone out there in the Modern Law Library listening uh, family, I am thinking about you and hope that everyone's staying safe and healthy and washing their hands for a minimum of 20 seconds. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening app.